Hello, this is Nishant and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Girl Show. This show is for people who want to live a fulfilled life through mindfulness practices and personal transformation. My job on the show is to invite world-class performers to share the practices to live a fulfilled life. And this episode guest is Dorsey Standish. Dorsey is the chief mindfulness officer of Mastermind, a Dallas-based brain health consulting team. Dorsey is a mechanical engineer, neuroscientist, and wellness expert who brings research-backed mindfulness meditation to clients nationwide. Dorsey has shared science-based mindfulness solutions with hundreds of companies, including Staples, Pier One, Deloitte, United Way, Peloton, and Lockheed Marty. Dorsey's teachings draw on her neuroscience background and her personal practice and experience, along with her certification in mindfulness-based stress reduction from UMass. And now, let the episode begin. Dorsey, welcome to the show. Hey, Nishant. Thank you so much. You are an engineering whiz and Texas Instruments project manager, and you described yourself as workaholic, and you never wanted to do breathing and meditation. You were always on the go, 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 and you're the opposite of everything you're doing now. You are the chief mindfulness officer at Mastermind, a Dallas-based brain health consulting team. How it happened? From a mechanical engineering background to a chief mindfulness officer, can you please share your story with our listeners? I would love to, Nishan. Thank you. Yeah, it's funny. My friends and family can't not believe that I practice mindfulness today, let alone teach it. I've always been very type A, go-getter, as you said, overachiever, went to Penn for mechanical engineering and got a great job with Texas Instruments right out of school. And I've always been a scientist and an achiever. And it was my experience at Texas Instruments, actually. I was working as a project manager. I was getting to travel all over the world to China and Taiwan and India. And I loved it. And then I had this really awful experience of stress-induced burnout where I wasn't able to sleep. I wasn't eating right. And I ended up having to take a few months off of work just to get my mind and my body back to a healthy point. And it was during those few months off of work, mind you, I told you I'm a workaholic, right? So you take work out of the equation and I didn't know what to do with myself. But being a scientist and a researcher, I started looking into ways that I could protect my brain and my body against these symptoms of burnout. What was the best way to train myself so I could be more resilient to stress and I could be more effective in my job? And I came across mindfulness meditation and really decided, well, I have this time. I'm going to commit to learning how to meditate and I'm going to do something for myself every day. I saw that really clearly in the research that the most effective mindfulness techniques are things that you commit to doing on a daily basis. It's a practice, not a performance, right? Meditation is one of the mindfulness practices. Yeah. So I define meditation as a practice of focus, right? You can meditate on a candle. You can meditate on your breath. Um, you can meditate on your intention for the coming year. And 
mindfulness meditation is what I trained in and what I teach now. And that's a type of meditation where you're focused on the present moment, either through your breath, your body, or your five senses. And I found mindfulness really to speak to me because it's something, as you mentioned, that you can tap into at any moment, right? Just being aware of your breath or your body gives you a sense of of grounding and presence no matter where you are. And so I was drawn to the practice of mindfulness and the practice of mindfulness meditation as ways to train my brain to anchor into the present moment and connect with a deeper sense of peace and well-being. And when you were working at Texas Instruments, where were you working at the time? Which city, I mean? Yeah, so I was, I've been in Dallas since 2012. So I've been working in, in I've been working in Dallas with Texas Instruments at their office in Richardson, Texas, right outside of Dallas. And I started off as a mechanical design engineer and then switched pretty quickly to program management, which is the role I was describing that had lots of international travel, product launches, really exciting. But also I found that I wasn't able to keep up with the demands of the job and keep myself healthy to be able to do it. And how many hours were you working at the time? Gosh, I mean, I would say, you know, nothing too crazy, 50 to 60 hour work weeks. Um, that is crazy. Think... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you were, think... you, were, you were working 50 to 60 hours a week and then you started feeling burnout. What symptoms did you feel when you were burning out? Yeah, so I, I actually had trouble sleeping. I felt like I was kind of underwater a lot of the time. Like I wasn't fully present. It took me a really long time to do tasks that had once been pretty easy for me to do. I had trouble, you know, I had trouble getting to work and doing kind of the normal things. My experience of burnout is a little bit different than maybe most people's because I was actually diagnosed with bipolar disorder. So when what was, was happening for me was, was a mental, sorry? When was it? Uh, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder in 2015. Okay. And so my, my burnout may not look like other people's because I actually was having what's called a hypomanic episode. So I was not sleeping, staying up a long time with all the time zone shifts and everything from the travel I was doing was really just completely, I didn't realize it at the time, but was really exhausted. And when I finally came down from that experience and started to get healthy again, I was just completely exhausted and worn out. And it took me a few months of recovery to be able to go back to work. And this is common thing when we cannot focus on one thing at a time and, or we cannot focus on the simple things. Like you are saying, you are not able to focus on things that were super easy. Because if, and you were taking more time. So these are common symptoms that we are burned out and when we are, we are trying to push harder when we need more sleep and more rest. That's really true, Nishant. And I've, you know, it for me, you know, like I mentioned that I had a diagnosis of a, of a mental disorder. For a lot of the clients that I work with, they might be dealing with some underlying depression or anxiety, but even just the regular experience of, of stress can be extremely harmful to our mind state in our body. As you mentioned, that experience of, of not being able to get things done and feeling like you have to keep going, whereas really your body and your mind are asking for, for rest. Slowing down is tough for a lot of people. It was tough for me, and sometimes it is tough for me as well now. But I practice mindfulness, being present 
at the moment and it's it's an awareness it's that feeling when you know that you just know that you are not able to produce the quality of work you are working at it but it's not coming through it you're just pushing through it just to do it and it's not having any quality so when when you were diagnosed with bipolar disorder is it when you started mindfulness yeah i had actually at the time i had already been practicing and teaching yoga so i like to consider yoga as kind of like my gateway drug into meditation because the movement and the breath helped me be ready to sit with myself in stillness so when i was diagnosed with bipolar disorder as i mentioned this experience of burnout i started researching how can i train my brain for stress resilience and landed on the practice of mindfulness and mindfulness meditation and that's in um the beginning of 2015 is when i committed to doing that daily practice that i mentioned of of meditation through present moment awareness what is the difference between mindfulness and mindfulness meditation so that's a really good question i consider mindfulness to be a broader term that encompasses simply you know awareness right and you know this cuz you're a mindfulness practitioner and expert yourself the ability to pay attention to the present moment um in an open curious engaged way and i consider you know mindfulness could be closing your eyes and really tasting the food that you're eating it could be having a conversation with a colleague and being fully focused on the conversation and listening and engaging with that person and i consider that to be what might be called informal mindfulness so just mindfulness in daily life whereas mindfulness meditation is a more formal practice where you set aside a specific time to train your brain just like you would go to the gym to train your physical body and you set aside that specific time with limited distractions to really do strength training for your brain to practice coming back again and again to the present moment with the anchor of your choice what could be the benefits of mindfulness meditation for our listeners who trouble meditating yeah so it's really interesting ishan when you look at the the benefits of mindfulness meditation it turns out that the people who have the most trouble meditating who have things like attention deficit disorder right or have really busy minds it's those people actually that benefit most from the practice of meditation i didn't know that <laughs> yeah and so if you're anything like me it's really hard to do something that you feel like you're not good at right because when i first started meditating my mind was all over the place and so for me I started with 1 and 2 minute meditations so I couldn't make an excuse that I couldn't do it and I also learned to see every time that I was distracted from the breath or from my object of focus to see those distractions not as a failure but as an opportunity to come back to the breath I think the, the myth is meditation is supposed to be controlling Because our mind Because when you look at hmm I think the myth is meditation is supposed to be controlling our mind we get to control our thoughts it's not about controlling it's about being present with the thoughts sitting with the thoughts they will come and go and not 
being identified with those positive or negative thoughts just let it come and go yeah you're it's exactly right sort of letting things come and go and i like this idea you know my company is called mastermind and i i love the idea of mastering our mind not in the sense of controlling it but i think that a lot of suffering comes when our minds are our masters when our minds pull us in different directions at different times and we have no control over kind of where our mind takes us and so through the practice of mindful meditation as you mentioned we get to master our mind in the sense that we can you know be aware of thoughts and emotions coming and going but not necessarily identify with the thoughts and emotions and what kind of meditation you started very first time so i practiced mindfulness meditation as i mentioned so present moment awareness my first training was from um, andy pudicombe's book get some headspace and then i used the calm app so very basic tools to learn how to meditate and then it was later that year that i went on my first silent retreat and studied with a, a teacher to help deepen what i was learning what happens in the silent retreat so a silent meditation retreat everyone always kind of freaks out about the silence part of it right but it is. <laughs> actually <laughs> the joke is that the the silence is the easiest part the, the hardest part is actually meditating for 8 to 10 hours a day and so the you know i've done 3 day 7 day 10 day silent retreats and the general idea is as you as you you know it's pretty obvious right you're not talking talking you're not engaging with people and you have that opportunity to focus fully on your own practice typically there's an alternating between sitting meditation and perhaps walking meditation or eating meditation and so there's an an opportunity to bring mindfulness with you not just in the meditation periods but throughout your daily life during the retreat do you ever talk to other people in the retreat or you are just silent all the time so Usually in most retreats you get to talk to people at the very beginning of the retreat so there's like an opening dinner of some sort and then there's usually a closing meal of some sort as well so you get to talk to people at the last breakfast or the last lunch but for the most part in the main part of the retreat you're not allowed to talk to other people unless you know unless you have some sort of emergency like I I was on a retreat a few years ago and I woke up with a tick in my arm And so I had to talk to the retreat manager so she could remove the bug from my arm because of that. But so you're not going to if you have some kind of emergency you're allowed to talk. Um but for the most part as much as possible, you know, keeping the silence and the respect for other people to deepen their own practice. If somebody has never done any sort of meditation, they freak out about the silence. Would you recommend them to go to the silent retreat? That's a really good question, you know. I've been on silent retreats with people who have literally never meditated before and they learned how to meditate on the retreat. I personally don't recommend that. I think that that's kind of overwhelming and a total shock to the the nervous system. They might turn away. What I would recommend <laughs> Yes. What I would recommend is that they start doing a small at-home practice even if it's just 5 minutes a day to start exploring meditation, learning what it's like, how to sit, 
watching some videos or reading a book about it. And then within the first year, I think it's a good idea for people to have an experience of silence. And meditation can be listening to a song over and over and getting into the meditative state. That's very true. You know, meditation, as I mentioned, just means focusing, right? So you could be focusing on a song that you love and getting into that flow state of experience, you know, totally focused on that song. And focusing on any one particular instrument in that song. And that is deep level of mindfulness. Yeah. Is that a, a technique that you practice? On and off. On and off. I, I know somebody and she was saying that whenever she wakes up in the morning, she tries to focus on 10 different sounds in the environment. It could be bird. It could be any sound. It could be honk of a car or any so focusing on 10 different sounds. Sometimes if my mind is overwhelmed, I go for a walk. I go for long walks and I try to gaze at the stars. I would look here and there just to keep my mind away from the task which is creating overwhelm in my head. Or I would I would just count the number of trees. As I'm walking, I would count the number of trees or stars just to it's kind of a spiritual practice just trying to focus on different things so that mind gets distracted basically yeah i love that the using the five senses as an anchor so looking at the stars looking at trees listening for sounds all of those are really easy accessible ways for us to be in the present moment so i love that you're practicing that way so and mindfulness is is a lifestyle it's going to be a lifelong process when we meditate one one day it's not we are not going to be calm and peaceful forever it's a daily practice <laughs> and some days are going to suck and then we need the most mindfulness practice it's very true i find that you know in my experience the it was a really difficult experience right of the burnout the diagnosis that that's what caused me to really deepen my practice and turn to meditation. And I find that with a lot of my clients, they reach some kind of breaking point where they can no longer go on the way that they are and they need something different. They need to cultivate their inner strength and inner resources. And so mindfulness is a great option for, as you mentioned, those difficult days, those difficult times. That's when we really grow and can use our practice. And sometimes just not doing anything if work is tough and if we can afford not to do that work at that moment we can just leave it and do something else not doing it you know killing time and <laughs> not having any purpose-driven time sometimes we are so stuck in being productive <laughs> you know just just don't do anything just kill time watch netflix do something else watch a movie play video games to distract your mind and when you come back to the original task, you will be more creative. Yeah, that's really true. There's there's definitely evidence to support, like you're saying, that rest time actually makes us more creative. But switching tasks to something different, when we come back to what we were doing, we're going to be more creative and more focused. Like, have you ever gotten an idea for a project when you're in the shower or out for a walk or like doing something completely different? That's a lot of the time when our brain has that space to really get creative and innovative with what we're working on. So you're totally right that we can find inspiration in unexpected places, even in Netflix. <laughs> and for this podcast, I was thinking too much. And then I thought, 
you know what I, i'm not gonna use any script i just go with whatever is flowing through my mind just going with the flow not having any scripted question for this nice and you have a certification in mindfulness based stress reduction so what is this certification about what do you learn in that certification and how can you help somebody else to reduce their stress yeah so uh, my training as you mentioned is in mbsr or mindfulness based stress reduction and this is uh, the program that was popularized by John Kabat-Zinn who you could think of as kind of the father of mindfulness and he brought this program to the US in the late 1970s and it was basically for him he had experience with vipassana insight meditation with yoga and he wanted to bring these practices to people in the US um, without any religious labels on them so he wanted to make them completely secular and science based and so the MBSR program is an 8 week program designed to reduce stress as you mentioned as in the name right and so his first clients for the MBSR program were people dealing with chronic stress and chronic pain people who you know western medicine couldn't really help them anymore and so he proposed that the patients learn mindfulness and use mindfulness and mindful meditation to help lower their stress levels and ultimately get them to be physically healthier and i was really drawn to that program because as you mentioned i'm a scientist and while i i am a spiritual person for the scientist huh it's tough for the scientist to believe in this hocus pocus <laughs> right? right but now we have so many great research studies showing the benefits of meditation um but i loved that the mbsr program was secular science based there now as i mentioned decades of research to support mbsr and so i was really drawn to practicing and learning that program it's a really extensive certification process but it's a really rewarding one it includes lots of silent meditation retreats and intensive weekend and and 10 day trainings but for me it was the best choice just because of my my science background so this whole mindfulness thing do you think we can improve our memory ability to remember things in a long term can be can we improve that yeah so you know i'd say that when we look at the research the top benefits of mindfulness are probably first and foremost stress reduction right and this is both perceived stress so how stressed you think you are and then actually measuring people's cortisol and adrenaline levels to to physically gauge their stress with mindfulness we also see improved concentration and focus and we also see that physical health is really correlated with mental health um, so you can lower inflammation levels you can lower your blood pressure and your resting heart rate through the practice of mindfulness and so you're mentioning in a question um about memory and whether that can be improved through mindfulness yes. and i think that that's something that a lot of my clients you know a lot of my clients are in their 50s and 60s and they're starting to wonder you know is how am i going to preserve my brain as i age you know i want to be able to remember things and I can answer this question in two different ways Please. the first way would be to say that that so when we look at the ways that the brain can change with the mindfulness practice we see that um people who meditate actually have more gray matter density so more neurons 
in parts of the brain associated with executive functioning, so your prefrontal cortex, as well as more gray matter in the part of the brain called the hippocampus, which is the center of learning and new memory. And so these two parts of the brain are really integral in short-term memory and as well as focus. And when we look at patients who are suffering with dementia, such as Alzheimer's, we see that the two parts of the brain that are impacted first are the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex. So in a sense, mindfulness meditation protects against the decline of those two parts of the brain by growing their size and adding gray matter to them. And so it's a protective function around our short-term memory and our ability to focus. There's even evidence that in patients with mild cognitive impairment, so really early onset forms of dementia, that they're actually able to slow the progression of their disease through the practice of mindfulness meditation. So there's evidence for this idea of neurogenesis, right? That we can actually create more gray matter in our brains to protect against the natural aging that can happen um, through the practice of mindfulness meditation. As I mentioned, you know, when we think about memory, you, you mentioned this idea of long-term memory, and really there's no evidence that mindfulness meditation directly impacts long-term memory. What it's been shown to improve is your short-term memory or your working memory, so the ability to hold multiple items in your mind at once. Um, working memory is like, I'm telling you my address, and then I'm giving you directions to my house. Can you remember my address while I'm giving you directions to my house? And that's one of the first things that goes, the short-term memory that goes um, in patients who are experiencing cognitive decline and even um, conditions such as Alzheimer's, as I mentioned. And uh, science has proved that when we meditate for at least three months, our mind changes or our brain changes. And there have been so many case studies before meditation and after meditation, the brain completely changed and it keeps and keeps evolving over the period of time. And there is this common denominator among a lot of millionaires and billionaires. They meditate. Not everybody, but it is becoming the common denominator that people meditate to reduce their stress and when you can reduce your stress you can think you can become and you can think differently because when we are stressed our ability to think goes down it goes out of the window and i think stress is an overused word sometimes even if we are not feeling stressed we just say stress and what we say our words become our reality our words become our thoughts and it impacts our mind and we start to feel yeah that that's really true i think we sometimes stressed. we almost wear stress like a badge of honor too yeah because oh. stress is nothing but <laughs> when we are over pressure then it becomes stress if we have decent amount of pressure it doesn't mean that we are stressed that's right? really true there's a it? difference between stress and pressure and I don't know, it doesn't always, for me, I don't have to be stressed, I don't have to be busy, I can still be successful and happy and not feel like I have to use those words to describe my life. Exactly.
And how does neuroscience of mindfulness come into all this mindfulness meditation? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I'd say kind of what I just shared around the way that the brain is shaped through mindfulness meditation, as you mentioned, studies that show how the brain can change um, through the concept of neuroplasticity, just the ability of the brain to change in its structure and its function. So the neuroscience of mindfulness simply tells us that, that our brains are plastic and that um, we can actually, our brains can change for the better through the practice of regular meditation. I think it's have, interesting. Is, oh, go ahead. Uh, do you have any favorite book in the realm of mindful in the realm of mindfulness that you can suggest to our listeners? So if, if people are wanting more scientific books, two of my favorites are Altered Traits by Dan Goleman and Richie Davidson, and also Why Buddhism is True by Robert Wright. And the, both of those, the first one, Altered Traits, uses research around mindfulness to really support what you were asking about the neuroscience of mindfulness and the, to see whether the health benefits that are claimed to, to happen from mindfulness are actually true. And then why Buddhism is true is more about evolutionary psychology and how our brains have evolved to keep us alive and procreating, but they haven't necessarily evolved to keep us happy <laughs> and well. And so how mindfulness works to reduce our suffering by reducing the fluctuations of the mind. And speaking of happiness, mind is not designed to be happy. It doesn't, <laughs> it, it, it works for survival, you know? It's very true. The Why Buddhism is True book goes into so much of that, and I love it. And you're right that, you know, with our negativity bias, for example, we're prone to notice what's wrong and pay attention to all the negative things in our environment. So that's why practices like mindfulness and gratitude help us to find that happiness that's elusive based on how our brain has evolved. When you have those negative thoughts in your life, I'm sure everybody has it, and we tackle it through it. So what practices do you have apart from meditation in your life? Yeah, so um, I think that one of the most important things for me has been to recognize that negative thoughts are okay, and there's no need to judge myself for the negativity, but to welcome and accept the the negative thoughts, just like anything else like we were talking about, you know, it's all part of our experience. And when I'm working with negative thoughts, negative emotions, a couple techniques help. The first would be journaling. So when we write out our experience, it requires our brain to use both the right and left hemispheres. And it requires us to put words into our thoughts and emotions. And through the process of writing out what's happening, Oftentimes we get a sense of clarity and we're also able to let go of a lot of the negativity as we're writing. I've heard people saying that they cannot do journaling because their kids will look at it, their spouse will look at it, and they don't have any private place to write their thoughts. What would you recommend for those people? Yeah, so a couple ideas with that. Um, one would be that you write it and then you crumple it up and you throw it away. Another would be that you type it out on your device on a Word document and then you erase it afterwards. You know, I think that it's we're so concerned with the idea of privacy oftentimes that we don't give ourselves the space to really express how we're feeling. 
maybe even, you know, not in quarantine times, but going to a coffee shop and writing there and then throwing it away afterwards. And uh, speaking but giving... of quarantine, we are recording this podcast on April 6th and we are living in a world where we are having coronavirus. If you are listening to this podcast, maybe in 2021 or in late 2020, we may not have coronavirus, but you can apply this journaling Hopefully. any point of time. <laughs> yeah, journaling can be really therapeutic. It's also always nice just to talk to someone. Sometimes if we can't journal for whatever reason, if we can just have a conversation with someone, times the most helpful thing is to get that negative thought out of our head and onto paper or tell it to a friend, right? Because it can't drive us crazy anymore once we make it, we bring it into life in a journal or with a friend. It's going to cause the most harm if we keep it in our minds and we don't get to express it or work through it at all. Yeah, because if we keep, if we are keeping all those negative emotions in our head, it creates very deep level of anxiety and we, and it, it creates depression actually. And But we have to be mindful about sharing our thoughts with people. We get to share things with people whom we can trust upon. Don't go out and share with anybody. You know, that it's very important thing to share with, share with people who can trust us and whom we can trust upon. Right? Yeah, I agree. And I think there's always value in working with a coach or a therapist or someone whose job is literally to, to do that, to be trustworthy and to help you work through things. I found a lot of value in my journey with both personal therapists, with business coaches, personal coaches, having an objective person to talk to and to work through things with is really invaluable. I'm not suppressing your feelings. A uh, long time ago, I, I used to be one of those guys where I could not share my feelings with anybody and it creates passive aggression. <laughs> the side effect is passive aggression and when you burst, you burst so bad. So that is, we get to be mindful about that. Dorsey, do you think we can practice mindfulness during loss and grief moments if, if our loved ones die and this is a grief moment? Can you practice mindfulness? If yes, then how? Yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned, Nishant, that we are recording this in the time of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think that during this time, we're all experiencing a sense of grief just over kind of the loss of what 2020 could have been, maybe the loss of being able to be in person and with friends and family. And, you know, grief is a really normal part of human life. And it's not a bad thing. It, when we grieve, it means that we really loved something, that we have a lot to be thankful for and to appreciate. And one of my favorite techniques for mindfulness for grief is actually from Tignat Han, And he has a technique called the art of grieving. And it, it's, I think it's a five-step process and it walks you through steps like saying hello to your grief, making friends with it, making space for it. He invites you to reflect on the path that brought you together. So if you're grieving, um, I worked with a client recently who had lost her brother last month. And um, so appreciating the whole relationship, right? Whether it was a, a breakup or a death, appreciating all of the goodness that led up to that point of grief and loss, and ultimately choosing to heal and setting an intention to be present 
and to heal just for today. You know, I choose healing, I choose peace, I let go of happiness and sadness, and I choose to be present and peaceful in this moment. And for this five-step process, yeah. for this five-step process, coming back to the five-step process, before I would like to mention that Thich Nhat Hanh is a Buddhist monk, or if people do not know Thich Nhat Hanh, he's, he's a Buddhist monk, and his favorite saying is, there is no way to happiness happiness is the way and now coming back to the five step process dorsey i was asking you that can our listeners find where can we find the five step process is there a book or do we have the article online um i'll provide you with the the link i believe it's just a google a matter of googling um the art of of grief by tignat han and it's an article that that i'm referencing he may have written a book as well about it i'm not entirely sure and uh, so whenever you work with your clients on that grief process or that five step grief process then how is the result look like so i think you mentioned Nishant, earlier in this episode that you know mindfulness practice is not something that you can do once and experience peace forever and it's really a practice and this that's the same thing with the grief process right we can move through it with mindfulness as a practice but it's not a you know a meditation that we do once and then we feel completely better right it's a, a process that we commit to on a regular basis and so i'd say for my clients that i've worked with around grief the biggest thing for them has been learning the process that i mentioned and continuing to practice it for themselves to give themselves space to feel and to heal there's a i love the phrase you have to feel it to heal it i think a lot of times we stay busy and preoccupied and work to avoid feeling our feelings and it's really hard to move through grief or loss or any other difficult emotion if we don't have time to just do nothing and be still and be present with what's happening so with my clients you know eventually they get to move towards a greater sense of freedom a feeling of moving on from their grief and their loss but it takes a lot of intentional practice and a lot of time as i mentioned feeling and being present with the loss do you think people have resistance in feeling free and i strongly believe that mindfulness practices can really help us feel free from insight and i also see that people have a lot of resistance they know that something is not working in their life but still they are miserable they are not taking any action they are not reaching out to people for their help you know when we are struggling we get to ask for help we get to ask for support and this is mindfulness again asking for support asking for help is a mindfulness practice again saying that okay something is not working in my life and i get to do something about it but still we have that resistance So how do you deal with the resistance usually in your life? You know, I think I love that phrase what you resist persists. So typically yeah, I <laughs> typically I remind myself or my clients that you know, resisting is only going to make the problem stay around longer. I think 
you know, resistance is, is just like grief or any other emotion or experience. It's something that we get to make friends with. It's something that we get to be okay with, that we can actually acknowledge the resistance. And one of my favorite techniques when working with emotions or difficulty is to notice what it feels like in the body. So if you're experiencing resistance to asking for help or anything else, what does that feel like in your body? Is there tightness in the chest? Is there a clenching of the stomach? And whatever you're experiencing, if you can make it in the level of the physical body, it's a lot easier to work with it and move through it than keeping all the energy in your thoughts and in your head. So, you know, in that five-step grief process, we're working with the feeling of grief in the body. When we're overcoming resistance or anxiety or anything for that matter, we're noticing how it feels in the physical body. And oftentimes it's that noticing, that allowing for our physical experience that helps to create some space around it and allow us to move through it with grace. And do you ever see a pushback from people that it's good for you, mindfulness is good for you, but this is not for us? We are not a spiritual, we are not religious. <laughs> Do you ever get a pushback on that? Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny, not so much from me, but I'll, I will talk to clients who they'll be like, I sent your, your class to my sister and she told me that she just doesn't meditate. You know, like she can't, she, that's not for her. She doesn't do that. So I don't know, I don't get that response as much in person because I, myself, I talk about how skeptical I was and I, my favorite clients are people who are skeptical and think that meditation isn't for them because that was totally me. But I think it's really common to feel like, oh, you know, I'm not a meditator. Oh, I can't do that. My mind's too busy. I mean, we can, there are a lot of different excuses. I think it's important to have compassion for people wherever they are in their journey. And if they don't want to try meditation right now, that's totally fine. Maybe they'll have an experience that actually makes them really curious to learn more and turn to something that can support them in, in that moment. And it's not, it's not a matter of judging somebody that if somebody is not meditating that they are bad or if somebody is meditating, they are amazing. They are, we all have our shit. <laughs> we all go through shit every day. I remember this scenario five or six years ago. I My friend got married and he used to meditate every single day. I did not meditate at the time. I asked him, why do you meditate now after you get married? <laughs> Everything is fine. <laughs> <laughs> There was a judgment and I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know. So it's not a matter of judging anybody that somebody is mindful or not. It's a practice. Mindfulness is a framework and it helps us to be more compassionate with us, be more loving with us, accepting in a, in a healthy way and seeing world with different lenses in a calm, peaceful way and treating others in a nice way and being kind and acceptance of others, you know? Yeah, that's very true. And what are your favorite books that you love to read to distract your mind? <laughs> yeah, I think I mentioned the altered traits and why Buddhism is true. Another one that I've been reading a lot lately is by Pema Chodron, who's a Buddhist nun, and it's called Taking the Leap freeing ourselves from old habits and fears. 
She's also written books like When Things Fall Apart. Um, so she has a lot of bestsellers that take the concepts of Buddhism and mindfulness and make them really accessible through stories and simple teachings. Great. And I want to ask you my last question for this podcast, Dorsey. Where can our listeners find you online? Yeah, thanks, Ashant. So as you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I'm the Chief Mindfulness Officer of Mastermind, and we are a brain health consulting team here in Dallas. Um, we travel nationwide when we're not <laughs> in the shelter-in-place order. We travel nationwide to facilitate corporate and community mindfulness sessions, and our passion is really to unite the experience of mindfulness with the science behind the practice so you can better understand how meditation can positively impact your brain and your body. And you can find more about our work at our website, mastermindmeditate.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram as Mastermind Meditate. And right now we're offering several virtual mindfulness series online. So no matter where you are in the world, you can sign on and join us and learn more about mindfulness from the comfort of your own home and get in touch with a community of, of like-minded practitioners. And you can change your world by being more mindful. You can change your thoughts by being more mindful. When you change your thoughts, you change your world. So thank you, Dorsey, for being on the show. It has been an amazing conversation with you on mindfulness. Thanks so much, Ashton. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. I hope you learned from this episode that you can apply in your life. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to the podcast, The Nishan Garg Show on Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe to the show through my website, https colon slash slash nishantgarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me. You can also share this podcast with your family and friends or whoever want to feel fulfilled. And thank you so much again.